Thanks very much to uh, uh, Jack there. Um, he sort of preached my sermon for me this morning. So. <laughs> but I think it bears repetition, so I'm still going to go ahead with it anyhow. But let, let's turn again to that uh, passage um, in John 20. And we're going to read verse 24. We're going to go just a, a, a little bit further this time. Um, verses 30 and 31 as well, uh, which I think are very important. So, now Thomas called Didymus, that actually means twin, uh, he was a twin, one of, um, I think there's three sets of twins in the Bible, um, Jacob and Esau, and there are another couple, you'll have to ask Michael who they were, um, I've forgotten who they were, and then Thomas and his brother, but nothing or sister, uh, nothing is known about his twin. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So reads God's word. Let's uh, just take a moment to pray again. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who has spoken, who has revealed himself. And we thank you for how you have revealed yourself in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the record of his life and ministry which has been written by those who were there, who saw him and who heard him. We thank you that this has been preserved for us. And we thank you that we have the freedom and opportunity today to come together and to study your word. We pray that as we do so, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us and that you would strengthen our faith in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Now, I've been doing a a short series about uh, Jesus and some of the people that he met and had conversations with. If you read through the Gospel of John, you'll see that sometimes Jesus preaches to a huge crowd. Remember on one occasion, he had to end up feeding them. There were over 5,000 there. So he preached to that big crowd and then he had to feed them. Um, sometimes he met just with his own disciples even just before he goes to the cross he meets in the upper room just with the 12 disciples 
But then again and again throughout the gospel, you have a record of him having conversations with individuals. So, you know, Jesus' ministry was to the, the crowd, it was to the small group, and it was to the individual. And I think he's left us a, a pattern of Christian ministry which is still appropriate today. But what strikes me is just how Jesus cared for um, the individual. Uh, Jesus cared for people just as they were, who they were in their own particular circumstances, in their own particular personality. And we've seen him talk to uh, two very different people, Nicodemus, who was the uh, professor of religion, uh, and the woman at the well, who was a really basically a social outcast. And, and that's, the, I think, one of the marvellous things which we, we see about Jesus, just how much he cares about us as individuals. He is the good shepherd, and he knows his sheep. He knows each one of us who follow him. He knows us by name. He knows our particular personality. He knows our individual circumstances. And he's prepared to meet us where we're at. He does care for us. And I think that's an amazing and wonderful and precious thought. That each one of us matters individually to him. But let's look at, at Jesus now and how he deals with Thomas. And we're going to look first of all at Thomas's doubts. And then we'll look at Jesus' appearance. And then finally at our privileges. So that's where we're going. So we'll start by just looking at G Thomas's doubts in verses 24 and 25. <clears throat> Jesus had appeared to the other disciples on the evening of that first Easter Sunday. Uh, and back in verse 19 we read, On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. So Jesus had already appeared to the other disciples. But Thomas had not been there. And when the disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, he refused to believe them. He says in verse 25, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I will not believe it. And that is very emphatic. It's something like, I most certainly will not believe it. I will never, ever believe this. There is no way I am going to believe this. So it reminded me, some of you remember, may remember John McEnroe, the uh, tennis player, who a very good tennis player, but he had a, a great reputation for disputing you, you know, some of the umpire's calls. And he'll say, no way! Was that ball out? And this is, the, this is Thomas. He's so definite. He's so emphatic. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now, why was Thomas so skeptical? I think possibly... Possibly it was a matter of his disposition, his temperament. He does appear earlier in the Gospel, a few chapters earlier, 
If you remember, Jesus gets news that his friend Lazarus has died and he delays for a while and then he decides to go up to Bethany, the home of of Lazarus, uh, which is near Jerusalem. Uh, And uh, Thomas speaks up and he says, um, let us go with him that we may die with him. That seems a fairly pessimistic um, thing for him to say. Yes, he's a loyal, faithful disciple. And if Jesus is going to go up to Bethany, well, Thomas is prepared to go with him, but he's under no illusions. Jesus is going to step into enemy territory. He's going to go up to where the, the leaders of the Jews are already plotting against Jesus. Jesus is basically going up, it seems, to his death. And Thomas says, well, yes, okay, I'll go too. But I'm under no illusions we're going to her death. He seems to have that kind of gloomy, pessimistic outlook. I don't know if you ever read Winnie the Pooh, A.A. Uh, a. Milne's stories. Uh, there's a character called Eeyore, an old grey stuffed donkey, who was always gloomy and depressed and pessimistic. Not like Tigger, who was always bouncing around and very optimistic. But you see, we are all different personalities. We do have different temperaments. And our personality can actually affect our faith. For some of us, it seems to be easier to believe. Easier to be positive. Easier to have a hopeful outlook. And others of us, by temperament, um, seem to be, well... The glass is always kind of half empty. Our personality can affect our faith. It does influence how we see and interpret the world. And I think we do need to understand that. So perhaps it was his disposition. Perhaps it was his isolation. He was not with the disciples when Jesus Uh, came. Thomas, for some reason, had not been there. We don't know why. Perhaps it's reasonable to suggest that, you know, Jesus had been arrested and crucified and Thomas, along with the other disciples, had fled. And maybe Thomas was disappointed. He was depressed. He was discouraged. All his hopes and dreams of this kingdom of God uh, that Jesus had spoken about seemed to have been dashed and maybe he'd just gone off on his own somewhere, feeling that everything was hopeless. And it's certainly true that the isolated Christian can be susceptible to doubt. If we separate ourselves off from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, then we do leave ourselves more open to doubt and discouragement. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched any of those um, nature programs and you know you see a herd of, of, of animals and uh, maybe one of the younger ones or one of the weaker ones gets detached from the rest of the herd and the, the predator, the lion or whatever it is that's been stalking them, he, uh, the, the, the detached animal falls victim to the predator. And That can be true, too, of us. You know, that's why I think the author of the the book of Hebrews writes about the importance of 
of meeting together. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews exhorts us not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. That fellowship does strengthen and encourage faith. And just as temperament can affect faith, fellowship can strengthen faith. And I think that's a, an important lesson that we learn from Thomas here too. But I don't think we should really be too hard on Thomas and his doubts because I don't really think he's that exceptional. You know, as, as, as Jack was saying, uh, you know, sometimes some people say something we find it hard to believe. We do all have that kind of natural tendency. I mean, if I was to say to you, look, last time I was going into town on the bus, you know who was sitting in the back seat? The Queen. Now, would you believe me? I would think it'd be most unlikely. You would say, hang on a minute, you need your glasses changed. Or did you go down and, and, and pull her mask down and get a good look at her? Yeah, you know, it's just, we shouldn't be too hard on Thomas because, look, I mean, he, he was claiming to have seen Jesus. Jesus alive again. And that was an incredible thing. And I think in a way we should be thankful for Thomas's doubts. We should be thankful for his scepticism because it does answer the criticism that unbelievers often make that the disciples were gullible, naive, simple-minded men who were ready to believe anything. And Thomas shows us that that accusation is just not true. Thomas did not need to be a qualified doctor. He didn't need to have a degree in biology to know that dead men don't come back to life. When someone dies, that is the end. They don't come back to life. If the other disciples claimed to have seen Jesus alive, then Thomas wasn't going to believe it without some evidence. He wanted to see for himself. He wanted to be sure it wasn't a case of mistaken identity or wish fulfillment. He wanted to know it was real. He wanted to know it was true. He wanted to know that they really had seen the Lord. The Christian, Christian faith is not superstition. It's not imagination. It's not based on deceit or falsehood. It's based upon the truth, upon what really did happen. And for that we can be in a sense, thankful for Thomas's doubts. He does show us that these first disciples were not somehow or other unsophisticated, naive, primitive people who believed in ghosts and all kinds of spiritual apparitions and were just ready to believe what they wanted to believe. Now, Thomas shows us that these people these first disciples, they were just like us. And they needed to be convinced. And it was only when they saw the Lord that they were convinced. So those were Thomas's doubts. Let's look then just at Jesus' appearance in verse 26. Because a week later, 
Jesus appears in the same room again to the disciples and he answers Thomas's doubts. He says in verse 27, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Jesus very graciously and gently answers Thomas's doubts. He doesn't expel him from the disciples group. He doesn't reject him. He doesn't condemn him. He's not angry with him. He's not cross with him. But he graciously, clearly and firmly answers his doubts. The doubt doesn't disqualify us as disciples. Sometimes we may feel a bit guilty, you know, if we, if there, if we have doubts or there are questions that we, we cannot answer, there are mysteries we cannot understand, and, and sometimes we you know, might feel a bit uncertain and, and, and doubting. We can all have our doubts from time to time. But that doesn't mean that Jesus condemns us. It doesn't mean he rejects us. It doesn't mean that he throws us out of the family. On one occasion, John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, who Jesus described as being the greatest in the kingdom of God, he said about him that among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But there's one occasion when John the Baptist was in prison. And he had doubts as to whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? And Jesus' reply answered John's doubts. But you see, even the greatest of saints can have doubts. And Jesus is able and willing to answer our doubts. Jesus is patient with doubting disciples. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. So if you find yourself at times having doubts, having questions, being puzzled, it doesn't mean that you are an inferior disciple. It doesn't mean that you're unworthy to be a disciple. That can happen to any of us. And Jesus is patient and gracious and willing to answer our doubts if we bring them to Him. So that's what we have to do. When we have doubts like that, we bring them to Jesus and He won't reject us. He'll deal with us sympathetically. So Jesus appears to Thomas and he speaks to him and he shows, us his, shows him his wounds, the nail prints in his hands, the gash in his side where the soldier's spear had pierced him. And he commands Thomas, stop doubting and believe. This is no ghost. This is no apparition. This is no imposter. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was betrayed, who was crucified, who was dead, who was buried, and who is now alive again. 
This was the same Jesus. The same Jesus that Thomas and the other disciples had spent three years with, who had been with him, who'd shared their lives with him, who had listened to him as he had taught, who had seen him perform amazing miracles. This was the same Jesus who now had died and was alive again. And he paid the penalty for sin. He defeated the power of death. He'd satisfied God's righteous demands and was now alive forever. And Thomas sees and believes, just like the other disciples. You know, in verse 25, uh, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Back at the, near the, the, earlier in the chapter in verse 18, Mary Magdalene, went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. I mean, this is the consistent testimony of of the disciples, of Mary, of others. They said, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas now says exactly the same thing. He has seen the Lord. He has seen Jesus. Crucified, dead, buried. And raised again. He has seen this same Jesus up close and personal. And so he, his doubts are gone and he confesses Jesus to be Lord and God. My Lord and my God. Jesus is his Lord who has the right to rule over his life. Jesus is God, the Son of God, come in the flesh. You know, John opens his gospel with saying, In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And Thomas sees Jesus raised from the dead and he confesses that Jesus is God. He sees and believes. His faith is based on solid evidence. It's not a figment of his imagination. It's not an ill-informed superstition. It's based on real, solid evidence. It's not a leap in the dark. Sometimes faith is dismissed like that, as being just a, a, a leap in the dark. It's actually, faith is actually a step into the light. He saw and believed. So, you see Thomas with his doubts, Very understandable doubts. We see Jesus appear and answer his doubts. But what about us? What about us here today? That's, I think, where the the last few verses help us. Because, you know, we, like all subsequent generations, everyone who has lived since Thomas' day, We cannot see and believe. Maybe sometimes you've wished that you could. Maybe you you wish that uh, um, you could have got like Doctor Who's time machine and you could travel back to Palestine in the first century uh, and you could visit the, the, uh, the hills of Galilee or the streets of Jerusalem and you could see and hear Jesus as he spoke and as he performed these miracles and you thought, well, 
If only I could have gone back there. If only I'd been born 2,000 years sooner and lived there, then, yes, I, I, I could have seen him. But now, there's such a gap exists. This is all way back in the past. How can I, how can I believe in Jesus today? Well, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus says, yes, it is possible for people not to see me and yet to believe and to experience the same blessing as Thomas and the other disciples had. And John explains in verses 30 and 31 that his whole purpose in writing his gospel is so that those who were not there at the time, those living later, those who come in subsequent generations, they will have the evidence on which to base their belief and so to experience life. You notice what John says. These are written. These things are written. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John states the whole purpose in his gospel, the whole reason why he's written down these things. And as you read through John's gospel, you discover that he's very selective. He doesn't, he does, makes no attempt to, to, to record everything that Jesus did, but he's recorded, he thinks, enough to be, provide a sure foundation for faith. So he records just seven of Jesus' miracles. He turns water into wine. He, he gives a man who's blind from birth back his sight. He feeds 5,000 people. And, and, and there are just seven of these miracles, including this, the resurrection. And, G, and John records these things, he says, to provide the evidence on which men and women in subsequent generations can base their faith and so, they too might experience life. And that runs right through John's Gospel, that Jesus has come to bring life, fullness of life, eternal life, spiritual life, life in all its dimensions, the life of knowing God, of being aware of God, of being alive to God. This is why Jesus has come, that where sins might be forgiven and that we might have eternal life. And see, what John has done is he has provided the evidence as the basis for faith so that we might have life. It's, it's like a little equation. You know, evidence plus faith equals life. That's the whole purpose of his gospel, to show us Jesus to tell us about Jesus, that we might believe in Him, the crucified and risen One, the Savior of the world. And believing in Him, we might too have life, real life, eternal life, life in all its fullness. You know, one of the saddest things I think it's to see people living their lives and missing out 
only the greatest feature of life itself, which is to know God. And so many people just live their lives without no knowledge of God. And so they miss, really, at the end of the day, the whole purpose and meaning of life. But it's our privilege. It's our privilege this morning to be able to turn to God's Word, to read the Gospel, to study it, to hear what these eyewitnesses tell us about what they saw, so that we today, we may not be able to see with our eyes, but we can hear their witness, their testimony. And on that we can base as we can believe. And we too can have eternal life. Life in all its fullness. So we see, I think, that Jesus actually meets us as individuals. He met and talked to many different individuals. We've seen him meet Nicodemus. We've seen him meet the Samaritan woman. We've seen him meet Thomas. Three very different people. And yet each one of them had a a profound need. And Jesus met that need. Nicodemus, in his spiritual darkness, was born again and became a, a follower and servant of Jesus. The Samaritan woman was a social outcast, weighed down with guilt and hurt and unhappiness and failure. And she meets Jesus and she becomes a worshipper and a witness. And Thomas, a sad, depressed, doubting skeptic. And he meets Jesus and he comes alive and he's a believer. And we too, you see, can meet Jesus today through the pages of Scripture and by the power of the Holy Spirit and he can come into our lives and he can change us and he can give us a whole new experience of life and purpose in life. We too can be changed by Him. Let me just leave you this morning with these two questions. Have you met Jesus? And how has He changed your life? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that here we see Jesus. We pray that we might see him as he truly is. The Messiah, the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, the one who has loved us and given himself for us. May we know him And may we experience the life which only he can give. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.